podcast for the working cowboy well howdy there daylight burners <clears throat> happy monday hope the weekend treated you all right uh sure starting to feel like spring <clears throat> been busy with uh with mexican cattle and yeah been uh been a busy busy couple of weeks but it's been been good it's, uh the weather's getting nice and I'm sure enjoying that. I uh, had a had a really nice conversation with Boots yesterday, and uh, I posted that up on the Patreon feed. So uh, if that's a little enticement for you to go sign <clears throat> sign up, uh, get to get to hear a little update from Mister Boots. Um, but anyhow, uh, I didn't get anything recorded tonight, and I was a uh, lot of stuff that I wanted to talk about, but I didn't have enough. Uh, uh didn't have a whole lot of time to to research anything so uh and then we got a got a big week coming up so got a couple a couple interviews and uh and the the family's on on vacation they went to spring uh to Oregon for spring break and um so I'm got a got a busy week uh coming so I uh I thought I'd repost an old episode uh a fellow named uh, Angus King, who uh, I spoke with. Uh, oh, when was that? I uh, it would have been in 2019, sometime November of uh, November of 2019. So, yeah, quite a while ago. Uh, but he is, he has since passed, um, Ang, uh, Angus McIntosh. He is, uh, he was a, uh, I don't know if he was a, I can't remember if he was a lawyer. Um, but he was a, uh, a specialist in, uh, in public lands or, uh, uh, grazing, uh, allotments and <coughs> things of that, that nature pertaining with, uh, pertaining to the, the BLM and, and ranchers rights and property rights and uh was a really uh had a had a very nuanced uh take on on private the private uh public land uh partnership and it was uh it was a really neat conversation and uh it's uh it's a bummer that he uh that he's gone now but uh i i was i was talking to my dad the other day and we and he had mentioned that and uh we, I'd, I'd really wanted to get him and my dad on, on an episode together so that they could talk, uh, talk about, uh, you know, BLM and, uh, public, public lands and, uh, and water rights, uh, in particular groundwater rights. And, uh, <clears throat> now that, uh, sucks that that'll never get to happen. But, uh, anyhow, um, in, uh, in memory of, uh, Angus McIntosh, here's, uh, Here's the conversation I had with him way back in uh, 2019. So 
Let's get into it. I've got a uh, really pretty unique guest on the show today. His name is Dr. Angus McIntosh, and he is a professor at Texas A&M University, as well as a uh, a member, or uh, I guess the director of uh, an organization that uh, that helps Western ranchers that that deal with uh, the Bureau of Land Management and uh, public grazing and I, if, sorry, Angus, I forget the, your organization's name. Uh, I have it right here somewhere. I can't find it right now. But um, uh, welcome to the show. And if you would, just kind of tell folks a little bit about yourself and what, what you do. Okay. Um, I previously worked for New Mexico State University. I was an extension specialist there. I worked as a member of the Range Improvement Task Force under John Fowler, uh, who was the head of the task force at that time. He's since retired. Uh, I was at, with the U.S. I started with the U.S. Department of Agriculture in, let's see, 1989. Uh, I am a retired uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture rangeland management specialist. I worked for both the Forest Service and the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Uh, I put in 16 and a half years of federal service. Uh, Part of that time was with the Bureau of Land Management as well. Uh, But while I was working for the Forest Service, I really started to question uh, a lot of the policies that they had, <clears throat> because the more I, I found out about ranchers' property rights in the law, the more I realized, and I was actually even told by some of my superiors at the USDA that ranchers had property rights, that they owned their grazing allotments. And that really piqued my interest, and I I couldn't understand why we had some of the policies that we did while I was working there until it was explained to me that uh, their policy was to try to diminish uh, 
ranchers' property rights or extinguish, if possible, their property rights, that uh, the Forest Service had a position that they actually were opposed to decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court that recognize ranchers' property rights and that their their whole policy was to try to extinguish or diminish in any way possible ranchers' property rights. Well, I, I naturally thought that was wrong. Uh, it was illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made uh, a whistleblower complaint, and the Forest Service then uh, tried to fire me. But they, they couldn't because uh, the law was on my side. I was actually scheduled to go to court, and the night before we were supposed to go to court, my lawyer calls up and said, the Forest Service wants to make a deal. So, uh, that, so they, of course the judge had already ordered them to put me back to work. So I was actually sitting at home collecting a paycheck while the lawyers, uh, my lawyer and their lawyers were arguing back and forth. The government did not want to be exposed. And so they settled and put me back to work and I worked for them for several more years until I finally I uh, got fed up working for the government and took an early retirement. Um, you, you did say earlier that I worked for Texas A&M. I did work a couple of years for Texas A&M a few years back, teaching online courses for them. But most of my university work was at New Mexico State University. That's where I received my Ph.D. in range management and agricultural economics. Okay. Um and the focus of my research was ranchers' property rights. I, when I went back to get my PhD, I wanted to know what the law said. I did not have a, a predetermined idea in my mind. I just wanted to do the research and find out what the actual law was. Mm-hmm. And the more I found out, the more... Uh, convincing and the more convinced I was that ranchers actually do own their allotments. And a lot of people um, don't understand. Uh, they they call the forest, national forest, public land, national parks, military land. They call anything that government owns an interest in, they call public land. But there's actually a legal definition of every term that's used in the law. Mm-hmm. And the definition of public land is not what people think it is. And they can go look this up. Uh, they can check it out and, and see, you know, what the actual definition. But public land is land or interest in land that is open to disposal under the general land laws and upon which there is no private previous private right or claim. So that's a very narrow definition. Uh, the term public land is thrown around and it's misused habitually. And the reason is because these federal agencies want people to believe that it is public land. And they've got people so brainwashed that even ranchers, when they have to go into court, uh, they do not 
even raise a challenge to that assertion. And of course, if they don't, then they will lose their case. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason the reason is, let's say um, that you own a hundred acres of land. Mm-hmm. All right, but I own the mineral rights to that land. And if you decide that you want to sell that land, you can sell it. And it does not affect my mineral rights. Or let's say I have a right of way for a power line across your 100 acres. You can sell your 100 acres. It does not affect my prior existing right of way. Mm -hmm. Or even let's say there's a, a ditch that flows through your 100 acres. If you sell your 100 acres, it does not affect my ditch or my water rights. It's an easement. Well, the reason that the the Forest Service and the BLM and all the environmental groups and even a lot of these uh, overeducated academics at, at the universities, the reason that they call it public land is because they know that if they can get a rancher to go into court claiming that it's public land, they're, they're going to lose. Mm-hmm. It would be equivalent to um, you selling your hundred acres of land and then, or, and then the new owner would come in and say, well, Angus, uh, you have to get off. You have to get off here. I own this land. And if I, and if I argued, well, gee, you know, I've been mining here for a long time and I'm a really nice guy and I'm, I'm taking care of the land. I'm not really hurting much. And if I don't bring up the fact that I own the mineral rights, the judge is just going to simply assume that you are the owner and that I have to get off. Yeah. It's a, it's an actual split estate. And this is well established in the law. Uh, one of the earliest cases on this was uh, in 1885, it had to deal with grazing rights a case called Griffith versus Gotti and the U S Supreme court ruled that, uh, that grazing rights were property rights. And it goes back even farther than that. A uh, case in 1877 called Atherton versus Fowler. And that is really the seminal case on the question of quote, public lands. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a rancher. He had a ranch. He had it enclosed. He'd been in occupation and possession of it for many years. And it turned out that he did not have the legal title to that land. Um, and so the courts ruled that, well, you know, he may, he may uh, have thought that he owned that land, but it's actually government property. They actually own the, the government actually owns the title. Well, immediately homesteaders started moving on to his ranch and setting up homestead claims and claiming it. Well, he took several years, went through through the court system and went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that that land was not 
public land, that it already had a claimant in possession under the laws of the United States and that nobody could homestead on that land because you can only claim or homestead or assert a mining claim or any other kind of right on, quote, public land. And if someone else was already claiming it under an existing law, then it was not, in fact, public land. And so from that point forward, uh, it, there, are, there are a lot of different cases that have gone through the courts, but if the rancher is ignorant of their rights and does not assert that he has property rights under federal laws, and I can, I can name off those laws. I can go through them here in a minute. Okay. But the point is that if there was already an existing claim or a right attached to that land, it was no longer, quote, public land. Okay. And so when a rancher gets hauled into court and he's accused of illegally grazing on public land, most of the attorneys in this country don't even have the first clue what the definition of the term public land is, but it's black and white. It can be found in Black's Law Dictionary. There are, there are three encyclopedia, uh, encyclopedic dictionaries, um, 40 volumes or more, uh, that are used by attorneys and judges in the country. One's called Words and Phrases. The other is called American Jurisprudence, and the other is um, uh, Corpus Juris Secundum. Um, and any of those sources, you can look up. A layperson can go into their local law library down at their local courthouse. They're going to have one of these sets or is going to be in your county courthouse. Okay. You can go down there, pull the book off the shelf, and look up the term public lands. There's at least 18 or more U.S. Supreme Court decisions saying that land that is already claimed, already settled on, is not public land. And you see all of these ranches in the West, every single grazing allotment, and by the way, that's the name of our association is the Range Allotment Owners Association. Okay. yeah, that's uh, We so. have ranchers in every Western state that have joined our association. And the main reason for the association is education, is to educate people on what their rights are so they know what to do when they're confronted by some of these very um, dishonest federal bureaucrats. And I, I say that uh, not because they're evil people or they're bad people. I used to be a career bureaucrat, but mm -hmm. the fact is, I was lied to by my superiors, and that is how they keep their employees in line. They lie to their own employees. They tell their own employees to call it public land, even though they know that it isn't. They know that these ranchers actually own their allotments. But the only way they can win in court is to set up an argument 
and get the rancher to go along with the argument that it is, quote, public land. And that's why the environmentalists and the federal bureaucrats have brainwashed the public, the general population of Americans, to call everything public land, whether it's a national park, a military base like they have in Nevada, the Fallon Naval Bombing Range they have out there. Um, They call everything public land. Why? Because from a legal standpoint, the government can do anything they want on public land. And Mm -hmm. the reason is because there's no claim. There's no claim or right attached to it. The legal premise is that public land is essentially, if you came to Nevada, if you went to Nevada 150 years ago and nobody had settled there and nobody was living there. It was just vacant, available for claiming under the homestead laws, the mining laws, or any other law. That was public land. The truth is, essentially, there's no surface public land left. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in 1916, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, a, a change in federal policy culminated with passage of what's called the Stock Raising Homestead Act. And that that policy was a split estate policy where the government would dispose of the surface and retain title to the minerals for separate disposal. Okay. So the National Forest, uh, if you read the Forest Reserve Act of 1891 and 1897, um, what Congress reserved was the minerals and the commercial timber. And even that phrase has a definition in the law. Commercial timber doesn't mean every tree. It means only certain species um, that are suitable for lumber and that are intended to be sold across state lines. Oh, okay. So uh, to understand Western property law, um, even most attorneys uh, don't, because when they come out of law school, they they, uh, move to these small towns and they deal with DUIs and divorces and things like that. It's it's rarely that they ever have a case that deals with ranchers' property rights. And most of them have never studied any of the 100-year-old land disposal laws that existed in the early 1900s. And that's why, that's why most ranchers lose their case or they get confused over people saying, well, if Thomas Jefferson was here, He'd say the state should own the land, which is a specious argument also, because the founding fathers did not intend for the federal government to own 90% of Nevada, and they certainly didn't intend for the state of Nevada to own 90% of the land in Nevada. The founding fathers envisioned a nation made up of private property owners. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what they did. They disposed of the land, the surface, to the ranchers as grazing allotments. 
And there's another word that you could look up in Black's Law Dictionary. Look up the word allotment. A grazing allotment is analogous to a homestead. The word homestead and allotment are used interchangeably in the law. Okay. So even though it's a different word, it has the same meaning. It was a grant of a property right. Now, the, the, the according to the Supreme Court in 1983, um, what ranchers own is the surface estate for all agricultural and ranching purposes. That's the way it's defined. Um, so a rancher can't just go out there and carve off, you know, 100 acres and subdivide it for, for condos. Okay, he owns the service for agricultural use okay. for ranching purposes. So they, uh, well, while they own the the allotment, the like you said before, it's a dual estate. So the government owns the timber for commercial timber and and the mineral rights, while the Above ground, that's what the rancher owns, but specifically for for grazing and farming uh, related to his ranching operation. Yes. Okay. I uh, I I'm, I'm trying to follow along with you because I, I I've uh, I've done a little bit of research on this, and it, you know it all gets very wordy, and I'm I'm not a lawyer by any means. So I, I'm, I'm just trying to follow along and, and, and clarify in my, in my own head. So I think, I think I'm with you. So, um, up until, let's see, the, the Taylor grazing act was in 37. Is that correct? That was 1934 was the Taylor grazing act. 34. Okay. So before then, uh, these grazing allotments were, it was, like there wasn't a whole lot of regulation in there, was there? No, and as a matter of fact, um, if you can prove uh, possession or occupancy is the is the correct word to use in relationship to the laws that Congress passed, if you could cl- claim and show uh, historically um, through conveyances back to the 1800s, as far back as 1890, uh, then even ranchers that had ranches uh, outside of national forests prior to 1934 uh, owned those ranches. Okay. Um, they Those ranches were owned if, and it was a question, according to the Supreme Court, it was a question of state law. What happened is the Congress, under several laws, mostly that were were passed under what are called the mineral land laws, mm-hmm. that Congress actually accepted or um, validated state law, which meant that they took state law and they embraced it and they put their stamp of approval on it. And once Congress validates state law, then it becomes 
equivalent to a federal statute. And they did that, for example, with water rights in the West by Section 9 of the Act of July 26, 1866. What Congress did was they, when they passed that act, they said uh, that all water rights recognized under state law hereby recognized and validated. Boom. And once they did that, now those property rights were validated. They were recognized by an act of Congress. And so it was no longer merely a possessory right that could be overridden by a federal bureaucrat. Once Congress puts their stamp of approval on a state law and says this is this is now recognized as as a property right, then it becomes recognized because under the Constitution, Article Four, Section Three, Clause Two, Congress has the exclusive power of disposal. They can dispose of land any way they want, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people that have the erroneous idea that you can only acquire titled land through a patent, but the Supreme Court has said that's false. The Supreme Court uh, in 1885, uh, in a case called Whitney versus Morrow, said that the highest monument of title or the highest evidence of title is a legislative grant. So when Congress passes a law, an act, and they say, this is yours. If you do this, this is yours, then the grant is made, especially if there's no requirement in the statute that a patent be issued. A a patent is only issued by a federal agency if they have been given authority by Congress to issue a patent. These federal agencies and not even the president can dispose of land unless Congress passes an act that authorizes them to dispose of land. So this this, uh, plenary power of Congress to dispose of public lands uh, is exactly how all of these ranches were disposed of. the key, I believe the key act would be what's called the Grazing Act of 1875. Okay. Because that's, it was right after that act that the Supreme Court came out with their decision in Atherton versus Fowler and, you know, Griffith versus Gotti. And there's, there's a dozen Supreme Court decisions, over a dozen, maybe two dozen, recognizing grazing rights as property rights, good even as against the federal government. Okay. And so the same the same with water rights. Even though water rights are adjudicated under state law, those water rights, even if they're um, in a grazing district or a national forest, as a matter of fact, the Supreme Court in 1978, in a case called U.S. versus New Mexico, ruled that ranchers own the stock water rights in national forests. So it's 
that, and that was one of the cases that really got me questioning my superiors at the Forest Service. I said, here's, here's the U.S. Supreme Court saying ranchers own the water rights. And the response of my boss at the Forest Service was, well, we think the Supreme Court is wrong. So, so who's the criminal element here? It's these federal bureaucrats themselves. They have chosen to ignore the law in order to promote a false premise that ranchers have no rights uh, in order, believe it or not, this is how it was put to me, to create jobs for federal employees. That's Mm -hmm. their whole purpose is to hire more biologists uh, for endangered species or you name it. Mm. Now, if ranchers knew generally, if they had the knowledge that it took me the last 30 years to acquire, if they knew that they own these property rights, that would put an end to all this bureaucratic nightmare that ranchers have been going through for the last four decades. Well, but the thing is, they're unaware of these laws. Yeah, I, in, I, I would agree there because uh, there's a lot of this stuff that I I've just learned here over the last couple of days while I've been <clears throat> uh, kind of researching some of of your work and uh, and really over the last couple of years I've uh, you know I've, I've followed the the Bundy situation and the Hammonds and the and the Finicums. And, and that all of these, these standoffs, if you want to call them that, or these protests and the struggles is all spurred from encroachment by the Bureau of Land Management upon grazing rights. And, uh, and that, that, you know, and it led to Lavoy Finicum, uh, being shot in Oregon. Uh, it, it took a, uh, you know, I don't know how many thousands of dollars the the Bundy family has spent. It took a, a presidential pardon to get the the Hammonds out of prison, and but the the heart of it all is is grazing rights on uh, so called public land, and uh, and there's there's just so much nuance uh, to all of it that it, I mean you know, it's kind of hard to follow. But I uh, I guess when you you say like about four decades of, uh, of this bureaucratic, uh, nightmare is that, was that all kind of started with the Taylor grazing act? No, it actually started. Uh, there was even after the Taylor grazing act, there were very explicit statutes, uh, passed by Congress ordering the secretary of interior and secretary of agriculture to dispose of land under the existing land laws. For example, um, I believe there is a a small, what they call national grassland in Oregon. Uh, most of the national grasslands are in the uh, Western Plains states mm-hmm. um, down through North Dakota, um, Wyoming, Nebraska, 
Colorado, Eastern, Eastern Colorado and, and, uh, Eastern New Mexico, even in the Texas and Oklahoma panhandle. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and there's even one in Kansas. So these national grasslands were lands that were bought up by the federal government during the great depression and the dust bowl lands that, that, uh, farmers just couldn't make a living on. Mm-hmm. Um, 160 acres just wasn't enough to support a family. And so what happened was the uh, federal government bought those lands with the idea of resettling them. As a matter of fact, there was an agency in the U.S. Department of Agriculture called the Resettlement Agency. And the whole idea behind buying up all that land was to then allow uh, nearby established ranchers to uh, settle on that land as grazing allotments. Okay. And to be able to acquire the title to those allotments under the existing laws. And that was in the 1940s. So this policy of Congress of disposing of these lands as a split estate was the policy all the way up until 1976. And in 1976, uh, Congress passed the Federal Land Policy Management Act. And the Forest Service, and they also the same, well, the next day, they passed what's called the National Forest Management Act. and from that time forward, the Forest Service and the BLM have uh, undertaken a policy of trying to destroy property rights, whether they be water rights, whether it be grazing rights. That has been their internal agency policy. That's not the policy of Congress. Under both of those laws, there are savings provisions that specifically say that nothing in those acts will affect valid existing rights. But there again, if you're a rancher and you don't know what your rights are and you cannot articulate that in court, then you are going to lose in any legal argument. And that is what has happened. Since since 1976, these federal agencies have undertaken a internal policy of trying to destroy ranchers' property rights in any way possible. And when you look at the West, it's very obvious why ranchers are the primary target. Um, The grazing allotments that ranchers own cover hundreds of thousands of acres. You can have one rancher in Nevada, um, the Hage family, they owned five grazing allotments that covered uh, an area slightly smaller than the state of Rhode Island. Mm. And so you can see why, even though ranchers are a relatively small group, there's maybe about between 23 to 25,000 uh, allotment owners in the Western United States. But they are a, a huge target because their property rights cover such a vast amount of land. And so they are the primary target of these of these agencies. 
And the way it was put to me when I worked for the Forest Service was um, I was actually told by my my boss, a district ranger one time, he said, listen, if these guys are so ignorant, they don't know what their rights are, you keep your mouth shut. That is not our job. So mm. that, is the, that is the attitude in these federal agencies. Now, a lot of them, a lot of these federal employees are ignorant. They're just as ignorant as the ranchers are of what the real law is and what these ranchers' property rights are. And so they inadvertently lie to the ranchers. But some of them are very well-versed in what the law is, and they purposely lie. They lie, they deceive, they use any means of trickery to try to get ranchers to sign away rights or to, uh, to agree to do things that they don't have to do. And then you have people like Clive and Bundy, um, who I've known for 30 years. And I always tell people, Cliven's right, but not for the reason he thinks he's right. Mm -hmm. Because the law is on his side. The law is on his side. He just doesn't know the statutes to back him up. Mm-hmm. Instead, he has this nebulous claim that somehow the state of Nevada or Clark County really owns his ranch. Well, the the logic of that escapes me. You can't say, well, the state owns my ranch, but I own my ranch. You mm-hmm. can't have it both ways. And the problem is most most of these ranchers, they know they own something. They just don't understand the law under which Congress granted those property rights. So, um, what do you think the the big shift in in seventy six? Like, what was the main driver behind that? Was that just uh, you know a push for more government control? Because in seventy six, that'd have been when Carter got elected, but he wouldn't have been in office till seventy seven. That right? Um, I believe Nixon was was actually president in that time period. Nixon and Ford, I believe, okay, was in that was in that time period. And as you know, Nixon was being impeached. The Democrat Party uh, was really in control of the government at that point in time. They were able to to take over. Um, a almost a supermajority in both houses. So even though Ford, Gerald Ford, was president, he had very little power um, because Congress could do essentially whatever whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. And since, and I hate to make this sound partisan, but the the truth is, the fact is that they are a are and always have been a very socialist-leaning uh, party, and they see the Western lands that ranchers own as a way of um, uh, of capitalizing the national debt. 
Okay. Uh, they the the a lot of people believe the the what the so-called national debt is owed to China or it's owed to central bankers or you know various theories. But the reality is, whenever Congress passes a bill and there's no money in the Treasury to back it up, um, the Federal Reserve just cranks out more paper money. Mm-hmm. They have a license to print money and they print up as much as they want. And so in reality, the vast majority of the so-called national debt is actually owed to the Federal Reserve, which is a a consortium, a, a congressionally authorized consortium of, of 12 banks. I mean, you can go on the internet and look it up. To type mm-hmm. in Federal Reserve banks. It tells you exactly where they're at. Yeah, who they are, and yeah. and these banks, um, they want something. And it was at that same time period, during that same time period, if you rem- you may recall, when uh, our our money was actually taken off of the silver standard. Mm-hmm. And so it was no no longer gold or silver to back up money. Uh, the value of money, the Federal Reserve had to have something. Uh, so and the socialists thought, well, you know, we've got all these vast lands in the West to um, capitalize and uh, to use as to collateralize these loans, um, this national debt that's that's owed to the Federal Reserve. For all the programs they finance that they don't, you know, that the federal government didn't have any money to to support, mm-hmm. and so in reality, uh, I think that that is what the driving force behind uh, those in government and to to use ranchers' property, use ran, you know, and. And ranchers' water rights and their grazing rights have been under assault since 1976, and that's very. And you can trace that back. Um, whenever a Republican administration has came into office, uh, for example, um, right after FLIPMA, the Federal Land Policy Management Act, and the National Forest Management Act, right after they were first passed. Uh, that's when that's when uh, Jimmy Carter came into office. He was a one-term president, mm-hmm. and um, Reagan beat him in 1980. Well, Reagan was a Western governor. He had been a governor of California. He understood land issues in the West, and when he came into office for the next eight years, he was able to. Uh, basically ameliorate or or quiet the uh, the attack the assault by these agencies on western ranchers and so there was a, a sweet time period where cattle numbers did not go back up but they didn't go down any farther mm-hmm. so he was able to just kind of maintain the status quo but then once um, Clinton came into office and he appointed Bruce Babbitt as Secretary of Interior, that's when he started hearing cattle free by 93 and the, the assault on small mining claims, on ranchers, on water rights really took off again. 
by these federal agencies. And it hasn't let up since. Well, and a lot on the logging side, too, hasn't it? Uh, oh, absolutely. And a lot of I mean, the, the fire uh, disasters that we have, uh, especially in California, I live just right up against the border of California. Uh, a lot of that has to do with just overgrown timber because they're, they're not allowed to log. They're not allowed to graze uh, as extensively as they need to. And uh, and therefore, it's just a tender fire waiting to erupt. Well, there's a that's another there's an example right there is another example of ignorance of the law, mm-hmm. because in the Forest Reserve Act, what's called the Forest Reserve Act, 1891, there is actually a provision that says it is a criminal defense. In other words, if you get hauled into court, you can get off by just claiming this criminal defense, and it says right in the law, it's a criminal defense that if you're charged with illegally cutting timber from a forest reserve, that you own, all you have to do is say, I was cutting it for my own use or not even for your own use, but just cutting it for use by a resident. So it doesn't even have to be yourself. You could say, I was cutting it for my neighbor um, and not for export out of the state. Huh. And so it says right in the law, the residents, which means the residents of the state, if you're a resident of Nevada, you have a right to cut timber in a forest reserve or national forest, as they're called now, for, very, for specific uses, for construction, for fencing, and for other domestic uses, it says. And there's even a Supreme Court case on this from 1905, where where the U.S. Supreme Court says that the federal agency, the Forest Service, cannot use their power to make rules and regulations to deprive citizens of a right granted by Congress. Hmm. And so that right to cut timber and to cut wood for firewood or your personal use, it's a right. But since most people don't know that, and that law is still in effect, that law has not been repealed. Um, those rights are actually protected under Title Seven of the Federal Land Policy Management Act. The same act repealed a lot of these old federal laws grandfathered in all of these existing rights. So the problem is ignorance on the part of the citizens. If a county or even a citizen wanted to go out and cut wood, firewood, and he knew what the law was, then he could go out there and do that, and there's nothing the Forest Service could do to them. The problem is most people just don't know the law, and they don't know their rights. That's huh. That's good to know. I that's really good to know. Um, I guess uh, let's kind of shift over to some of the the bureaucrats in office now. I know uh, um, Trump has done some some good things. I know one of his his moves uh, here recently was to move the the offices of the the BLM to Grand Junction. Uh, so that a lot of these officials could be closer to the people they're supposed to be working 
in conjunction with being the ranchers, the loggers, that type of deal. Um, how, how do you see uh, the, these actions that tr- the Trump administration has taken? Uh, is it a good, bad, or kind of a mixed bag? Well, um, I, you know, it, it's good, but uh, there again, if you work for the federal government, um, I am certain that even though they're well-intentioned people that Trump is putting in office, well, most of them, mm-hmm. I think some of them, uh, I, won't, I won't mention names, but some, some agencies have better individuals than others. Um, it's still, uh, they're still fighting against an entrenched bureaucracy mm-hmm. that is, that has that that are themselves brainwashed and that have been able to brainwash a large percentage of the of the citizens and they don't know about these laws and even if they knew about them um these entrenched bureaucrats are not going to try to enforce the law the way it was originally written mm-hmm. because it threatens agency jobs. Yeah. If if ranchers knew that they did not have to sign a grazing quote a grazing permit. If they knew that they did not have to sign that permit, how many of them would actually sign one? Cuz when you sign those things it's got 20 pages front and back a small print saying you're going to give up your grass, you're going to give up your water, you're going to give up your improvements, you're going to give up all your rights in order to benefit uh, an endangered species, whether it be a wolf or an owl or a grizzly bear or a minnow or Mm. a mouse or you name it. Desert tortoise. How many ranchers would actually sign something like that? None. They wouldn't. Yeah. And so if they don't have the rancher's permission if the local federal bureaucrats don't have your signature on that paper that essentially gives them permission to run your allotment any way they want, if they didn't have that power, if they didn't have that authority, how many people would actually sign up for the service? And you got to remember the Bureau of Land Management actually was formed out of what was called the Grazing Service. Mm -hmm. The Forest Service is the Forest Service. These agencies were not created to rule over quote-unquote public land. They were created for the very reason that Congress had disposed of all this land as a split estate and ranchers actually own the surface. So the only way they can make ranchers do anything is to get them to sign some kind of contract or some kind of agreement, or in the law, it's called a cooperative agreement, get them to sign on these cooperative grazing agreements in order to make it enforceable in court. Hmm. So once they get their rancher to sign these things, then they can force them by taking them in court and get in court order 
to make them reduce their livestock numbers in order to support some endangered species. Well, these things are only, these agreements are only good for 10 years. And once they expire, then they, they convince the rancher, oh, you have to sign a new one. But first we have to do our, our environmental policy act study, our environmental assessment, uh, you know, our environmental impact statement. We have to look for um, Indian ruins. Uh, we have to do a biological assessment to see if there's any endangered. They tell, tell them all this stuff they have to do um, before they can allow them to have a permit. Well, they choose their language very carefully because certainly um, it's a government program. If you want to participate in a government program, you have to do everything that they say is required by federal law. But the fact is, they don't have to sign. If they wanted to just manage their ranch on their own, just like Clive and Bundy is doing, he doesn't have a permit. He hasn't had a permit for probably 25 years or more. Yeah. Okay. So, but the thing is, like I said before, Clive is right, but not for the reason he thinks he's right. If he only knew what the law was and what his real rights were, he could walk into court tomorrow and, and beat the pants off these off these federal agencies, no matter who the judge was, whether it was Gloria Navarro or whoever. Yeah. But the thing is, most ranchers just don't know the law, and there's very few attorneys that know the law when it comes to these things. This is something I've been studying for 30 years, hmm. and I have the answer for every single argument that the government can bring up. Unfortunately, in the Hage case, here's the thing about the law. Once you go into court with an argument, you have to stick with that argument. You can't change it later once you learn, oh, wait a minute, we should make this argument. Well, it's too late. You have to stay with the argument that you started with. Well, Hages actually did well. They won as far as their water rights are concerned. And as far as their right-of-ways to be able to access those water rights. But since then, I've also been able to find all these other laws that deal directly with the grazing rights issue. Okay. And and so we could have we could have won even bigger for the Hages if we had known. 26 years ago, 27 years ago, what we know today, then we would have started with the right argument. But we started actually through five different arguments out there. When Wayne Hage Sr. first started, he actually had five different arguments that he threw out there, alternative arguments, to, to see which one the judge would, would take. Well, the grazing rights argument that we have today as an actual ownership argument, surface estate argument, is an argument that we did not have back then. But we have the research now to back it up. 
that's so that's interesting. We're, we're actually actually working. You said you were from Southeast Colorado. Uh, myself and uh, an attorney are working with a rancher in Southeast Colorado to bring these issues before the courts right now. And we're also working with a rancher in New Mexico to bring the, these points of the law before the courts. So we've got two cases we're actually working on right now that will answer, we believe, in finality, these questions about ranchers' property rights. Well, that'd be great. I um, This has been really informative. It's been a lot to take in, but... Uh, I've enjoyed the, I've enjoyed the chat. Um, you might be familiar with my dad. Uh, he had a, a little case going against the federal government, a uh, little place called Pinion Canyon. Uh, Wes McKinley, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he, uh, he pretty well took on the U.S. military when they wanted to expand the, the Pinion Canyon maneuver site down in southeast Colorado and ultimately was able to pass a bill through the state of Colorado to withdraw the right of consent for the the federal government to seize land for um, uh, military use. And I'm familiar with with that situation. I don't know all the you know facts. Yeah, and all with the case, but I I do remember that. I don't know how much of that land was, uh, you know, was grazing allotments or, uh, and, and versus, you know, straight out privately owned. Uh, but I know it was a huge chunk of territory and in that part of the world, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, grazing, grazing allotments down there. So I'm sure that had, had a lot to do with it as well, but it's, uh, it was another case where, I just took some research and uh, and being aware of what the law was and what your rights are under the law, and and was able to able to win that case. I think I think had it gone further, he you know they may have lost in court. I don't know for sure, but a lot of times if you if you can you know prove your case and have a good defense. A lot of times they they kind of back off because it makes them look bad in the public's eyes. So if they can't, uh... that's exactly yeah. We that, there was a case in 1911 called Curtin versus Benson, where a rancher had a ranch established for many years under some of these laws that I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. And then the government drew a big circle and took about half his ranch into Yosemite National Park. And it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this rancher happened to know what his rights were. Mm-hmm. He was an attorney. And he was a, a California state senator. And he said, wait a minute. He says, I own 23,000 acres of range rights. And you cannot use your regulation that says I have to have a grazing permit, you can't use that to take away my property rights. And the United States Supreme Court unanimously agreed with the rancher. So the case law is out there. It just that it hasn't been used 
ever since then, the government has always tried to use the argument, oh, well, these are public lands. Mm-hmm. And if they get the rancher to bite on that on that bait, to take that bait, well, they know they're going to win the case. And so they pursue it. But every time a rancher brings up the right arguments, they drop the case. Mm-hmm. Just like you're just like you were saying. Yeah. And and so we're going to use these cases that already exist. And it doesn't matter that these cases might be 50 years old or 100 years old. It's still good law. Yeah. It's never been overturned. And we are, are certain that we can beat these federal agencies. Because the ranchers that are involved in these cases, they're not going to back down. No, they are not going to back down. So we feel pretty, uh, pretty good about it. Pretty confident that in the not too distant future, we're going to have good case law. So it doesn't matter if Trump moves the BLM offices to Grand Junction or anywhere else. Um, because Trump can serve maybe for five more years, mm-hmm. if he gets reelected in 2020, he can serve four more. But after that, who's going to be president? Uh, See, this is a battle that the bureau- the bureaucrats are like terminators. Mm-hmm. They never sleep, they never rest, they never quit, and they're always they just there. Keep coming. They're always yeah. there. That's that's the uh you know the term that gets thrown around a lot nowadays is the deep state and usually when you think of that you think of like CIA and a lot of the intelligence agencies but it's every single one of these federal agencies there's absolutely folks that are just entrenched in there and while they not may not be politicians per se because they're not elected they're just they're career bureaucrats and they uh just like everyone else they want to they want to hold on to that paycheck. They want to hold on to the semblance of power that they have. And they will fight you tooth and nail. But if 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 you've got if you're aware of what your rights are and what the law is, uh you, you can fight back and fight back effectively. And I think the you know, the Bundys have, have shown that pretty well. Like you said, I I'm not real for sure on on where Cliven gets some of his stances, but I I think he's well, it's it's been shown that he's right in in his claims. It just the reason why he's right, like you said, is is not the the correct assessment. But uh, I I think um, I think more people need to start reaching out to you about these these kind of things because once you sign that uh, that grazing permit agreement, uh, you're pretty well bound by what that agreement is. I mean, it's a legal document. So once you sign that dotted line. Uh, you're hooked. Well, there there are some escape clauses in the National Forest Management Act and the Federal Land Policy Management Act. But like I said, most most ranchers and most attorneys are unaware of those savings provisions. So even though they the law exists to be able to get you out of that, because for example, Title Seven makes makes everything in a grazing permit subject to valid existing rights. But then you have to go to court <clears throat> to argue what your valid existing rights are. So it's better not to sign the thing in the first place. But yeah, yeah you're right. Well, 
that's interesting. Um, I think uh, I think I've taken enough of your time today, but I would I would really like to get you back on and we'll, to discuss this even further and uh, you know go even further into the weeds. I'm I'm all about it. Uh, if if you'd be willing, I, I'd love to have you back uh, in the future. Certainly. All right. Love to. Well, uh, if there's any way that folks can get a hold of you and 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 get some advice and and counsel, I guess uh, where where can they find you? Well, we have a a, a Facebook page, Range Allotment Owners Association. Uh, we have a web page, um, Range Allotment Owners dot org um and they can uh get a hold of me directly um at our our email okay which is uh range allotment owners association uh at gmail dot com okay i will uh i will put all of those in my my show notes for this episode and uh for sure, I've got. I'm going to do a little research and and uh, pepper you with some more questions here in the future. So I appreciate your time and I appreciate what you're doing and and thanks for coming on the show. Okay, thank you. Have a good one. All right, bye. Bye. You rise up in the morning beneath the stars so bright. Pull your hat down, make sure your cinch is tight. Horse is kind of snuffy, cold chill up your spine, you'll get your ass moving somewhere burning daylight. Get your ass moving somewhere burning.